It's hard to know where to begin today, if I'm honest. In this ongoing, several-year conversation called Hints and Guesses, and which is a line from T.S. Eliot in the Four Quartets. He says, hints followed by guesses. And the rest is prayer, observance, discipline, thought, and action. The hint half-guessed, the gift half-understood, is incarnation. Yeah, the, um, I don't know, the breaking forth of, of the eternal. I, he, calls it, he calls it earlier in the, in the poem, the intersection of the timeless and time. He says that's the, the preoccupation of saints, the, the intersection of the timeless and time. And for the rest of us, that intersection is half guessed and half understood. And I don't know, that's what this podcast is about. And <clears throat> it's the, that comes from my own craving and longing and wondering and as much as I can, to, trying to turn my attention toward um, toward what only can ever be half half understood and yeah and um, I guess it's hard to know where to begin because I want to in some ways I want today to be a bit of a, a personal podcast like I don't know it's hard to say are my other podcasts not personal <laughs> um, and what do we what do I even mean by that in fact uh, a friend of mine not that long ago said I feel like on the one hand, I know a lot about you. And on the other hand, I hardly know anything about you. And you don't often share, uh, you know, <clears throat> I don't know, private details. And there are reasons for that. And I, I want to talk about that. I want to share some things and, and I want to um, share my own reservation. And I, and I want to talk about what feels like to me a, a threshold space like here I am in my mid 40s and and I can I can feel that I've left and I'm leaving a certain um, chapter of my life a certain house that I've inhabited and I've kind of uh, carefully arranged all the furniture in this house and um, fixed the window glazing and um, painted the rooms and rearranged the furniture and hung up the artwork and given away the books that no longer speak and held on to the ones that do and and sort of like when everything's been carefully arranged and I finally sit down in my, in my chair, there's another knock on the door and there's a, a cloaked figure there, the cloaked figure of the unknown, you know, saying it's time to leave. And, and I want to talk about that. I want to talk about, um, the blessing and, and difficulty of, of, of leaving home base again for me. Um, so that's where I'm headed and I hope you'll, you'll hang with me and I'll do like all my, what I have going on maybe at the end instead of here at the beginning. So, uh, the first thing I want to say is, which I, I, I said in my last podcast is, Hey, I'm moving to Georgia. I've been living in Michigan for a long time now. My wife and I have been married almost 25 years, and um, the first seven years of our marriage, we moved seven times, and which is insane. And but really, for the last uh, good chunk of time, we've been here in Michigan, and and I've been in this house on Grand River Drive in Ada, Michigan for actually I'd, I'd have to do the math but over over eight years i think it's definitely the longest we've lived anywhere and 
it's a beautiful piece of property. It, our house was built in 1850 and it has these gorgeous elm trees, which, and there aren't many left in Michigan and, uh, beautiful black walnut trees and, and it has, it's all, it, it's all the stuff you would expect from a house in 1850, built in 1850, you know, <clears throat> always needs something. And, and, oh, we have these amazing apple trees too. And this old variety of apples, they don't really even plant anymore. And it's been a real gift. And, um, yeah, so we're, we're, we're leaving here and we're moving to Georgia. My, my wife's from Georgia. Her entire family lives in the same small town. And Georgia has been a kind of, um, uh, what, what would I call it? A sort of a, a centering point in our, in our life. We've got, been going down there several times a year, well, since we've been married and our kids have too. And um, when we think about holidays like Christmas, we, we think about Georgia and, um, and about like 15 years ago or so, I bought some land down there. I went in with my brother-in-law and, um, we violated Dave Ramsey's, you know, uh, advice and bought some land on a balloon loan, hoping we could pay it off. And we did. And, and it backs up to some family property and, um, and we always knew, we sort of felt that we'd end up in Georgia one day. And But you know how it is if you have kids. It's like school and schedule and and what the, what the kids are into is uh, what becomes consuming. And, and all of a sudden, the, almost like with no warning, although I suppose like I could have asked anyone who's, who has kids that have gone through... Um, high school that, Hey, this ends. And, um, and like all of a sudden my, my oldest daughter is done with culinary school. She's getting married this summer. Um, my son is, is, has graduated from high school and is going off to college. And and my youngest uh, just turned 13 and, and all of a sudden there's like a window and, and what seemed like a kind of something we would imagine um, and talk about and wonder about suddenly became possible. And the time felt like now, if not now, when that's the, I think that's a Kiva from the, in the rabbinic literature, if not now, when, and, um, yeah. And, and it, it kind of happened suddenly in a way, but now I'm sort of in the aftermath. I've, I, I let C3 know where, where I'm, where I work and, a place I love. I've been teaching at C3 in Grand Haven for five and a half years. And it, and it's the longest I've held um, a job in a single place, really. And uh, it's been such a, like I said, a gift in my life. And um, it's strange because I'm leaving something I like doing. And, and so that feels good in a way, instead of, I don't know if you've ever left a job before that, where there's a lot of contention or, or, uh, un- uncertainty or a kind of a no, or you get fired. I've been fired before. Um, yeah, it's, but this feels different. It feels, it feels good to, to say goodbye. And there's, and there's some grief with that, but it also feels like the right thing. It's time for me to move on. And, but I'm in that place where I've said I'm leaving and now all these, you know, sort of, I don't know, dominoes are falling in the, and it kind of starts to take a, a life of its own and I'm in that place. And so we'll be moving in a couple months and, and heading down to Georgia and, um, yeah. And I want to say something that I hope, well, it, it's personal and, but I, ho- I also, I also, I'm encouraging you to think about the, the relationship between a private life, maybe even a private spirituality and what's for public consumption. This is a major tension in my life, being a public speaker and, and a writer. Um, and make, you know, I make these podcasts and I say things occasionally that are going on, it's going on from me. And, 
um, what is that dynamic and what's for public consumption and what's not for public consumption. And, uh, and I've, I've always felt this tension and, you know, some of this, I'll just admit some of my own hangups, but I grew up in, in a household where my dad was a preacher and my, my grandpa was a preacher too. And my grandpa was kind of like a bard. He was, uh, kind of sing-songy and he had this like Irish accent and he was always, um, you know, you'd feel the sermon building up to a point and he would switch to a, like a little um, kind of Irish saying or more often uh, a hymn. He'd start quoting a hymn and like obscure verses from some hymn that no one knows about. And that was his kind of he sing-songy, musing kind of preaching and my dad was um was a different kind of preacher and he was quite funny and and uh likable and wanted to be clear and um loved you know greek words and what they mean and um and like any preacher especially evangelical preacher uh you know the best sermons are the sermons that involve some disclosing some family ordeal or story or mishap. And, and so most of my life, what, you know, different, different stories or scenes from my childhood were on public display. You know, my dad would, would weave in, you know, something that happened on vacation or something, you know, funny that one of us kids did. And, um, you know, that gave me kind of a strange feeling because on the one hand I felt sort of liked and honored, you know, like, uh, um, what's the right word for it? Like uh, sort of special, I guess that's the simplest way of putting us, oh, but you know, I feel special and, and, um, a certain kind of maybe even notoriety, you know, would follow that. And, but then also, you know, over time, the experience of, of hearing, some story uh, being told. I also had another curious feeling that sometimes I, most of the time I would try to push down, but there was like some discomfort, like, and the discomfort was something like, that's not exactly what happened. <laughs> um, that's kind of what happened, but you're conveniently telling the part that is proving your kind of theological point here. And um, and maybe more importantly, I wouldn't have been able to articulate this obviously when I was a little kid, but like, it's something like, well, that's not the way I would put it. That's not what happened to me. That's a version of what happened. And, and that's often what happens when, when people like me tell stories about life and, you know, even my own book bitten by a camel, that's my perspective on, on what happened to me in Israel. And if you want to know what my, you know, my wife thought about our life there and you'd have to ask her and, and the way I put it is not the way that she would put it for sure. And so anyway, uh, I've, I've always felt this tension. In fact, when I, when I started working for, um, for Mars Hill, <clears throat> I would have this like debate with Rob and, um, about kind of how much should you include your kids in a sermon or not? We would kind of go back and forth. And, you know, my kind of perspective at the time was like, no, you know, don't, you know, tell your own stories. Don't tell their stories kind of thing. And that was my sort of bias. And anyway, we had this like kind of healthy back and forth about this. And, and, um, and when social media came along, I realized that the temptation and the ease with which to um, put, you know, put others on display was like readily available on at my fingertips. And you know what people really want to see is, you know, a picture of your kids or your picture of a picture of your spouse or like the, you know, show us your your kitchen when it's messy, you know, <laughs> like um, show us the real Show us what's real, real life. And, and this also made me uncomfortable too. And we, you know, um, you know, I remember a few, 
heated arguments with extended family members about what's permissible and what's not to put on social media. And, and, you know, I, you know, we as a family had some boundaries around that. In fact, even today, um, we have a rule in our house, which is if you're going to post something, we, I mainly use Instagram, but I have Facebook account too, that I occasionally check and they're linked anyway. And, but if I'm going to post something in in any picture at all that involves, um, our, you know, my kids, my wife, even our house, you know, um, then we, you know, we, we have to ask the other for permission. And if it's not granted, then we don't post it, you know, or if later on someone becomes uncomfortable with it, we take it down. So it's kind of the way that we've tried to walk this line of, um, having a private life and even a private spirituality and what's for public consumption, because, um, you know, the fact that I'm in, I hate to even say this, but the world of spirituality or, um, the business of spirituality, you know, talking about spiritual stuff, um, makes it even, uh, the terrain even more difficult because if one's, or I'll just put it personally, if my private spirituality becomes the thing that I'm making public, then I don't have a private spirituality. I don't have um, a still small voice anymore. More. I, uh, I have something else. And I remember Rob one time even saying, one of the things that we've decided as a, a family, is Rob Bell, sorry, that I'm talking about. Um, <clears throat> he, he said, once we put something out there, like a, you know, something that's happened to us, it's no longer ours. You know, if we tell a story, if I tell a story in public, I've given it away. It, it doesn't have the same, it's not mine anymore. And then it takes on a life of its own. And, and I guess that's a good way of looking at it. If you're going to say, like, if I take what I talked about in Bitten by a Camel, I've now given it away and it has a life of its own and people will hear what they want to hear and take what they want to take from it and reject what they want to reject about it. And, um, project onto it what they want to project onto it and it's no longer mine in the same way and I think that's an important distinction and um, I think that's why you know Jesus has that terrible line which he says don't cast your pearls before swine and um, you know most people hear that and what they hear is the word swine and it's like oh so-and-so is not worthy to hear my you know precious insights or something and actually I think what Jesus is saying is that um, it changes the nature of your own pearl it changes the nature of of the the gift that you've received the the hint the guess half understood that's barely forming that's shape shifting your own life the spirit um, the still small voice um, yeah, it changes the nature of the pearl. And so maybe it's not so much about the other person. It's about, it's about the secret work. It's about the, the, the desert work. Uh, yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> I was on, you know, the Pete Holmes podcast a while ago and you know, whatever, five years ago or when bitten by a camel came out and I don't know, we were just like, there was no agenda. We were just kind of, you know, riffing on things as he likes to do. And, and anyway, we started talking about the vision fast and I had just come off of vision fast and he was kind of excited about that because there are some, <clears throat> there's related terrain. He's into psychedelics or was anyway. And, um, and so, yeah, what's a vision and what about altered states of consciousness and how is that related to a fast and what happened? And you just want to know what happened out there. And all of a sudden this Goethe line came to me, you know, tell a wise person or else be silent. I think he follows that with tell a wise person or else be silent for, I don't know if he says the unwise, it's not exactly it, but it's something like that. The unwise will mock it right away. And, you know, obviously I wasn't, you know, I wasn't, it wasn't a slam on, on, on Pete, but it's, it's this same thing. It's the same terrain. It's like, um, tell a wise person or else be silent. You know, we have to be honest about social media is not the realm of wisdom, is not the wise person. 
And this makes me extremely uncomfortable right now in, in our, in our, what I would call a kind of cult of uh, vulnerability right now. Like being real is, is being vulnerable and, and, and whatever I'm feeling is what's true, first of all, and what I then uh, put out there in the world and, you know, TikTok and, and Instagram and Facebook and Snapchat and whatever. I'm sure there are like five other things I'm, that I don't even know about right now. And they're all bowing down at the altar of, of vulnerability, supposed vulnerability. And, and it's become a, it's become like a, in a way, a kind of cult. And, um, and one of the things I've, I've learned as I've, I've been, you know, training to be a guide in, in, in this realm of spirituality and, descent to soul is the language we use at animus and one of the questions we often ask is something like you know to ourselves and sometimes out loud but who's the one speaking here and um and that's a fair enough question when it comes to what we put out there in the world and why we put it out there in the world and what we need from um, making ourselves quote vulnerable in the world and it's very toxic terrain that's what i would say Kind of in, att in, an, in an attempt to be authentic, the, the, um, the world has turned toxic, to use an over, overly used word right now in spiritual circles. I think it is, at least. And I don't know. So um, I think it's important to ask um, questions of set and setting and context and to wonder well what is my what is my spiritual life here and what do i need to hold not not as like some kind of no one is worthy of my you know precious spiritual stuff you know that's not what i mean at all but um what do i need to hold silently long enough so that it can do its work and um yeah, and I don't know if I want to say much more about that um, other than to, I don't know, let it, let it hover out here. And so as much as I'm telling you what's going on in my life, you know, I'm, <clears throat> I think we have, I have, I'm trying to take responsibility for what's my story and what's not my story. And, and when is it appropriate to, uh, I, I, maybe I should say one more thing at that, I think it's the ego that loves story and, and almost like as quickly as possible, uh, it wants to make meaning. And, and sometimes the orientation of the ego of the egoic self is to make a sort of meaning that props up its own view of the world. And, and okay, that's fair, fair enough. That's what we do. Sometimes we, we construct a world that defends our persona and our, our, our idea of who we are. And we love to tell stories that prop that up. And whether they're stories of our own wounds or our own gifts. And <clears throat> yet the, to me, the, the mystery of, of a soul path, of, of really um, sinking beneath the surface of our, of, of our, egoic patterns um, of who we think we are it involves moving into some unknown terrain and we want to be careful to not make a story too quickly and I'm 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 you know preaching to myself and I'm as I said I'm I'm in a threshold kind of place and maybe what's true about being in in a liminal space in a betwixt and between is that that meaning-making uh, mechanism is suspended for a moment, for a month, for a year, for five years. I don't know. We can't quite do it or it doesn't quite feel right. It's waiting, you know. It's, um, it's, it's waiting. It's, there's a kind of self-emptying that's happened. To use a line, to use a word from the New Testament, a kenosis, a, a, an emptying. 
Or maybe like, here's an image. I love the story of um, Jacob wrestling the, I was going to say the angel, technically. In, in Hebrew, it says a man. A man comes to him and wrestles. Um, and, and then later on, it, we come to, to understand this as a kind of angel and, or even God. But it just says a man <laughs> initially. Ish is the word in Hebrew. <clears throat> anyway, before he wrestles, before this night wrestling match, which is a wrestling match of identity and meaning and purpose and who am I and blessing. And, and I've got a poem I want to read to you at the end about called um, a, a Blessing in the Dust. And um, it's a poem by Jan uh, Richardson. So hang on for that. And um, anyway, this wrestling match. And, but before he does it, before he, he meets this man, you know, at night, he sends over the river all of his possessions. He's married and he's got kids and goods and he's been away from home for a long time. And he sends all this stuff across the river and, and he's, in a way, there now naked. And, um, and that's, that's a little, that's an image for threshold space. It's like when we're leaving something, when we're leaving our first house of belonging, to quote David White, and when we're leaving a, a certain way of relating to our own life and, and a job and a role and a, or a marriage or a, a family or a geographical place, and um, yeah, it gets sent across the river and we're, we're more empty. We're more, we're, now we're actually more vulnerable. We don't need to post about it. We're... Um, we're feeling our own fragility and our own limits. And, and it's in our limitations and with our limitations that the wrestling match begins with our soul and with God and with the mysteries and with our own longings and desires and with our own griefs and, our res and a wrestling match with our own wounds. And, and that's that pregnant and potent liminal space that is both a womb and a tomb at the same time. It's a, it's a tomb because it's a, it's a death of what once was and it's a womb because in the mystery of, of the cave, the uh, possibility of newness begins to grow. We're pregnant with possibility, but, but, but uncertain of any guarantee. And, and it feels alive. It can feel challenging for sure. But for me, at least, it feels alive. And um, this kind of threshold space. Maybe the simplest way of saying is that I've left or I've nearly left and I haven't arrived. And wherever I'm arriving is, is yet unknown. See, it's not really, and that's what's funny because I'm saying I'm moving to Georgia. Yeah, but I'm moving and, and much of that is still unknown for me. I really don't know. And I don't know how exactly I'm going to make a living. You know, I don't know, maybe more importantly, the, the relationship between physical place and the terrain of my own psyche. Because one of the things I believe about the soul is, well, I mean, I'll borrow a line from Bill Plotkin. He, he, one of the lines, one of the many images he uses for soul is he, he calls it an ecological niche, which in one way is trying to say the soul is, is natural. It's not a, it's not a, a product of the mind. It's like, it's, it's, it's as physical as the tree, um, outside your window and and it can be and is rooted in a place and and I'll, I'm just taking it one step further that the the soul or the whole psyche um, is in relationship with the real world <laughs> I'll use fancy words with a bioregion you know with a but just with land with place and with story the story of a place and I don't know exactly what it will be like um, and how I might change and how I might uh, find a kind of grounding in a new place. And, and this move definitely, I, you know, I have some hints and guesses. It feels more um, final in a way. 
this pull. I don't, I, you, one never knows, but it, it ha, I have now, it's like my consciousness has shifted from what am I going to do with my life to, um, well, what about my kids and maybe even my grandkids? And, I, and, and Georgia feels like having a multi-generational conversation. You know, my, my wife's uh, um, grandmothers are still alive in their 90s and um, brothers and, and, and sisters-in-law and, and parents and cousins. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the son of an immigrant. Most of my, my extended family lives in, um, still in Northern Ireland. And, and on, on my mom's side, there aren't that many relatives. And um, it's almost like very much the opposite. And um, I don't know. So I guess what I'm saying is um, I don't know what will change and what will shift. It's more unknown than known. And what I carry with me is my imagination and, and of course, my, my gifts and my own wounds and longings and, and sense for home. And it's like a home in the deeper sense. I'm, I'm, I'm following, it feels like I'm following that thread and home as a, as belonging and who knows where the, the hand of mystery might, might lead and. I was reading some Evelyn Underhill. She's uh, uh, wrote the most famous book on on mysticism, and she says mysticism. I'm going to demystify it with her definition here. Is um, broadly speaking, there's a quote. Broadly speaking, I understand it to be the expression of the innate tendency of the human spirit towards complete harmony with the transcendent order. <laughs> Which, first of all, I love. She says, it's not for the, I'm interpreting, it's not for the saint, you know, it's not for Buddha or Jesus. It's an innate, I'm going to add some words, universal tendency of the human spirit toward complete harmony with the transcendent order. It's like, that's that homing device. It's uh, that's, that's that internal, um, non-negotiable compass that longs for increased harmony and wholeness with the eternal, with the transcendent order, with the intersection of, of the timeless with time. And then she adds, whatever be the theological formula under which that order is understood. You know, she's saying, I don't care what tradition or lack of tradition you come from. We have this innate pull, and I hope on one level I'm not just you know, um, moving to a new state, you know, to a small rural town in middle Georgia, you know. But um, I'm also, I hope, following that innate longing for harmony with the transcendent. It's like both. And they're tied up together, the, the timeless and time, the eternal and the ordinary, that's, that's the intersection. It's not like my spiritual life is somewhere else. It's also in the annoyance of packing up this damn house. Holy shit. Like how, how did I get to be the person who has this much shit? You know, it's like, yeah, and that too, you know, where's the intersection of the timeless and time and Yeah, so, um, yeah, that's a, a little of what's going on for me. And, um, yeah, and I guess I want to say, just practically speaking, I'm going to try to make a living as an artist. And I guess maybe I've always been doing that. And when I was a little kid in, in the fourth grade, um, I remember saying to myself primarily, I'm going to be an artist. I mean, I was asked, like, on one of those little sheets of paper, you know, what are you planning to do with your life or something? And I, I put artist and I'm not, I think I meant drawing. I did love drawing. I used to go to the woods and draw. And I wouldn't say I have like enormous talent for it, but um, I kind of meant that. But I, I just, I don't know what it was. 
there's there was something about that that maybe I just wanted to turn my attention toward the, what's beautiful and meaningful and and create something in the world and I don't who knows I you know I'm sure when I said that I didn't know an artist I didn't it's like I I, I was following someone's lead but anyway I don't know what what made me think of that but it's like um yeah, I'm going to try to make a living. And so that means this podcast is going to become a lot more important. And, and of course, I won't have my weekly teachings at C3. So um, I'll be able to spend a little more energy and time in um, trying to host this conversation. So I hope you'll help this podcast grow. And you can help it grow by becoming a, a patron, of course. And And the 71 people who are my patrons, I want to thank you really sincerely for every dollar on up that you give each month. You make it happen, and and it's going to become a lot more important uh, going forward. So if you want to become a patron, please do so. It supports me directly. Um, but you can really support the podcast by by passing it on. I, I hardly ever say, hey, don't forget to... I hardly ever say, uh, pass it on. And so I'm saying, yeah, pass it on. Let people know if there's an, an episode that you like or that you don't like... <laughs> for whatever reason or you partially like and or it stirs it stirs you up in some way yeah extend the conversation and um i'd love for it to grow and and my guiding work is becoming a lot more important to me i've been in uh um this guide training program at animus which is not actually called a guide training program for the last seven years it's called a soul the soul apprenticeship and initiation program and that's really what it is. We're apprenticing as best we can to um, to our own soul, our own shape, our own mystery, and 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 surrendering to the process of of the mystery initiating us into well into the work of guiding, but um, maybe more importantly into into um, following the soul's thread. To use a to use a line from William. St- Stafford and um, anyway, that's really what it's about. I call it the guide training because because that's a lot of what we're actually you know we're learning how to be better listeners and guides and um, but it's not like completing the soul apprenticeship and initiation program makes you an animus guide. I mean, I do hope to be an animus guide down the road, and but that's a separate process. I'm just apprenticing to the work and um, and and so anyway working one-on-one with people and and doing my own retreats and programs and online stuff has become a much more central part of uh, what I'm what I'm up to in the world and that will only increase and it's funny working with one-on-one with people it's been the biggest the single biggest surprise and I think gift in my life it's like I'm changed by it by the privilege um, and sacred relationship and container that um, is co-created in in the intimacy of that kind of conversation, the conversation about what is my actual life, what is my spiritual life, where am I, what's actually happening, um, what's happening beneath the surface of of um, of my life, you know. So I've been. Um, it's you know when I was a pastor, if I got an email or back then I had a. Uh, an administrative assistant, if I got a message from her, someone wants to meet with you, you know, I would be like, I don't really want to meet with somebody. And, you know, I, that's partly because I had my own hangups about that and, and meeting with the pastor and, and I don't know where I heard this, but the clerical collar, in other words, the being a minister is, is like the clerical collar is a, is a giant projection screen, which I think is a funny and clever way of saying um, people come with a lot of projections, and if you're not, um, if you haven't found the ground, or at least part of the ground of your own essence, the the ground of being your own being, what Thomas Merton would call the true self, or even a taste of the true self, then you're in real trouble in that kind of position. And that's partly why I had to step away from that world if I was going to grow up. And um. But anyway, you know, back then I would have really resisted that and, and I never would have imagined that 
a huge part of my life would be working one-on-one with people and, and loving that and learning from that. You know, life, I don't know, life may be a, a, a clue that you're, that the mystery is the real agent who's at work is that you can't predict your own life. <laughs> I, I, uh, I don't like the kind of spiritual-ish language right now of manifesting this or that. Like, I'm just going to manifest. Like, who's the one doing the manifesting? Is it the ego? Is it your persona? Is it some image you have of yourself? And who's to say what you're, quote, manifesting is you can manifest all the way to your deathbed and, and miss the subtle promptings of the real change agent at work here. The God mystery who maybe wants to blind you like St. Paul and lead you by the hand, you know, or um, who wants to swallow you like a fish and take you into the whale's belly so you can hear a song you've never heard before, you know, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> um, yeah. And so anyway, I don't know if there's more I need to add there. I'm, um, I'm going to keep writing. I do hope to publish a book in the next year. And I've kind of promised that on this podcast a couple times. And I, I'm on book number three or four right now, unpublished. I'm just slower. I wish I was like some of my friends who can crank out a book every six months. I'm just not. And I think it goes back in a way to what I was saying about private spirituality and what's for public consumption. And it, for me, things take time. And actually what's in Bitten by a Camel uh, took a long time to ever come out. You know, my, my wife said to me, the funny thing about this story, which has now become so publicly, you know, part of your own, you know, life was that when you returned from Mount Sinai, you didn't even tell me really what happened. And it kind of slowly trickled out and sheepishly and, and I remember one time telling an Israeli friend of mine what happened to me on Mount Sinai, and he was like on the floor laughing. And I was like, well, you know, I wasn't even trying to be funny. I was just saying, I climbed Mount Sinai and I got bitten by a camel. And he just thought this was the funniest thing that ever happened. And, and I wasn't trying to make meaning of it. And I think um, by no conscious effort of my own, uh, over time, it started to reveal its own secrets. Had I turned it into a sermon, you know, when I got back or something, I would have killed it right there on the spot. And, and I think that's what, what's happening to me now. It's like five years have gone by since I've put out a book and, and all right, now it's time. And, um, and enough time has passed for me to share a few hints and guesses. So anyway, um, writing and guiding and podcasting and, doing retreats and programs. That's what I'm going to do. And if I can't do it, if I can't make ends meet, I'll um, build houses and who knows? I don't know. And that will be good too. Um, yeah, maybe that's uh, as, as much, as far as I want to go, I, I want to end with a poem. I want to end with a, a, with a, a beautiful poem that my wife showed me the other day called a blessing in the dust and um, I don't know how I'm going to read it here and maybe I'll read it twice I'm not sure I might stop a few times this is what she says you thought the blessing would come in the staying and this is uh, I don't know if you've ever felt that before you thought the blessing would come in the staying. I'm going to ride this out. Um, the noble thing to do is to stay put. Those are my words. You thought the blessing would come in the staying, in casting your lot with this place, with these people. Yeah, and that's what it feels like. Ah, the blessing. I mean, that's that, that's that old craving. That's the, that's the innate, um, oh, what does Evelyn say? The um, innate tendency of the human spirit toward complete harmony with the transcendent order. <laughs> um, 
that kind of blessing. Yeah, and, and where will I have a taste for that? Well, in, in the staying with these people, with this place. And there's a kind of nobility to that, I think. In learning the art of remaining, and it is an art, it is an art, it's a beautiful, it, and maybe it, there is a kind of blessing in remaining, in staying, in casting your lot with these people in this place, with this landscape, with this weather pattern, with the second cloudiest place in the United States during the winter. That's West Michigan. <laughs> I think Seattle has us slightly. You thought the blessing would come in the staying and casting your lot with this place, with these people, and learning the art of remaining, of abiding. And now you stand on the threshold again. Ah, again you stand on the threshold. The home you had hoped for and ached for is behind you. Not yours after all. The clarity comes as small comfort perhaps but it comes illumination enough for the next step for me that's what it feels like i really don't know but there's a little clarity that just for the next step as you go i hope you can hear if you're in this kind of place, I hope you can hear the blessing she's trying to give you here. As you go, may you feel the full weight of your gifts gathered up in your two hands. I love this image of the gifts gathered up in your two hands because especially like, you know, quite literally I'm, I'm packing boxes and that's not really the stuff I'm I'm carrying it. As you go, may you feel the full weight of your gifts gathered up in your two hands, the complete measure of their grace in your heart that knows there is a place for them. There's a place for your gifts. There's a place for them. For the treasure that you bear, like for the pearl, as Jesus would say. I promise you there is a blessing in the leaving in the dust shed from your shoes as you walk toward home. There's an allusion to, to what Jesus says about um, passing your peace onto a town and if they don't receive it, to shake the dust as you leave. To shake the dust of the place from your shoes as you leave. That's a you should, you should find that passage. I don't want to spoil it, but she's alluding to that. So it's, there's a kind of power, there's a, a potent and almost dangerous power in what she's saying and also a kind of beauty. I promise you there is a blessing in the leaving in the dust shed from your shoes as you walk toward home. Not the one you left, but the one that waits ahead. The one that already reaches out for you in welcome, in gladness for the gifts that none of you could bring. I promise you there's a, a blessing in the leaving and the dust shed from your shoes as you walk toward home. Not the one you left, but the one that waits ahead, the one that already reaches out for you in welcome, in gladness for the gifts that none but you could bring. My hope is, as always, you hear a hint, a guess, and a clue in, in my many words, in my too many words, I'm sure. I hope you hear a, a hint, a guess, a clue in this poem by Jan Richardson. And I hope you hear um, her blessing for the gifts that only you can carry. And um, yeah, I can't thank you enough for for listening you know i'm i'm surprised that this podcast is still going i just reached you know uh 200 downloads and i think i have like 80 episodes so i'm you know i'm not this isn't joe rogan or something but um it's not nothing and 
um, I'm just amazed that it's uh, alive in the world and and thank you for being a, a part of that and you can check my website if you want to know what's going on I'm, I leave tomorrow I'm, I'm leading a, a, a small retreat in Colorado and then I have um, a little bit longer wilderness within intensive at the end of June and there are spots open I'd love to have you come and it is my favorite kind of work working with people outside and um, there'll be an opportunity to fast. You don't have to on my Wilderness Within Intensive at the end of June. Um, there'll be some solo time. There'll be ceremonies. There'll be conversation um, at a beautiful place in Big Rapids, Michigan, which is about an hour north of where I live. And I, I, I might in future years still do programs in this spot. I absolutely love this spot. It's a, on private land owned by an artist, and but it backs up to some federal land that you can, so you can really feel um, you can wander in a way where you'll not be disturbed. So I want to invite you on that. I've got, well, now I have three Israel trips in the works, which is, is amazing. Um, so end of February, beginning of March, one is um, cooking up here. And I've got a group of interesting uh, people coming. And I've got one uh, April 1st as well, April 1 through 10. That's with Denver Community Church, Michael Hidalgo. We've been uh, co-leading um, uh, Israel trips together. I think this would be five or six for him. So every couple of years we do one um, together, and then, and I think I'll have one in in the fall as well. But uh, you can check my website um, it's, uh, as things develop along those lines. And I will also have some online stuff available coming up here shortly. I, I'm trying not to get ahead of myself. Like all the stuff, like too much future work. I. I have to focus right now on on being here in Michigan and I don't know leaving well enough and so I'm not going full full steam ahead with all all of my uh, future plans but those are uh, at least a few things that are coming and anyway that's enough for now thanks for uh, tuning in peace